traditional LPGP structures. We're going to spend a real small amount of time on this because most of you are very familiar with this. But in case you're not, a GP is general partner, generally the person syndicating the deal, putting the deal together. The LPs are the passive investors. Generally, the LPs, literally by the name limited partners, they have limited exposure, usually just up, up to what they invested in the deal. Um, things that get uh, talked about here often would be what would the waterfalls look like? What are the preferred returns like we talked about? Um, and what types of fees are in there? We've seen uh, 10 different types of fees within a single fund before, a capital raising fee, a financing fee, disposition fee, acquisition fee, asset center management annual fee, a performance fee, and there's a couple others in there such as a construction fee, which is different than a development fee. And we've seen all of those within one deal before. And then we've seen deals that are performance only, which we're going to talk about on the next slide. So there's a full spectrum. And, you know, one billionaire I know said, you know what, I've tried structuring things where I sacrifice myself in the deal and I only get paid on the back end. And some of my investors don't even care. They don't even notice. They were investing because they trusted me and I could have, you know, paid for my costs up front, et cetera. Um, then other people swear by having maximum alignment. And a lot of people just go down, go down middle of the road. Um, but what I want to talk about on this slide really is just that, Sometimes performance only doesn't mean you have to lose money to do it. It just means maybe the costs are passed through para pursue to the investor. Maybe you're just super transparent with it. Say, this is our exact cost of doing this deal. We're not making fat margins off of charging an asset management fee, an acquisition fee, a finance fee is literally just the cost to do the deal. So we only really win when the deal does, does well together. And that's, that's often a balance that people are relatively comfortable with on both sides. Um, sometimes you need to have quote unquote profits because the management team has to live somehow. If you haven't had a past success with an investment platform, how are you supposed to eat and live and pay your personal mortgage and pay your staff, et cetera. So you realize that's just the reality of a lot of firms out there. But um, it's interesting in the RAA world, it, when you go to do your registration, your exam, if you say you're performance only, you're a bit under a microscope and the regulators say, oh no, performance only guy. Let's make sure they're not doing anything weird here. That's strange that they would charge clients only when they perform. Even that seems like the natural way of things. Why should you charge your clients anything? If you didn't perform, that's why they hired you, right? Uh, it used to be that people would get paid when they trade a stock. And then there was talk about, you know, churning the portfolio and trading stocks just to make money off somebody's account like 30 years ago. So people said, oh, well, the holy grail is fee only. And we'll charge 1% flat. We're just looking out for your best interest. Not always true because they really want to manage all your assets and grow their AUM fee. Um, and really fee only could also be called fee always. They're, your wealth manager will always charge you a fee. doesn't matter if they suck or if they're amazing, uh, if they're listening to you or not, it's just fee always. Uh, you'd think that the regulators would want people to be aligned with their clients and make money when they protect them from downside risk and, and capture some of that upside. What they're afraid of is, you know, heads I win, tails, tails you lose. In other words, we make a lot of money if they, we shoot the stars, but if you lose all your money, we're not losing money. So we're going to take big risk on your portfolio. So I think the future of this space for investment companies and wealth managers will be more performance-based, but a balancing of that over time, meaning maybe some of the performance fees go into an escrow account and drip out over eight quarters or 12 quarters. And in that way, if you're working with someone long-term, you might make the money short-term, but if you took a bunch of risks to do that, the risk might not always go your way. And then that money dripping out of escrow from that early performance fee gets held back to make that client whole because you now lost their money. Um, you know, you'd think with sophisticated convertible arbitrage, global macro strat strategies, option strategies out there, that this would be something common in the wealth management industry, but it's not. 
it's usually just fee only. And I just think the family offices that are sophisticated want people who are maximum aligned. Um, so just a Something that not many people do, but you know, family offices want an aligned partner. They don't mind paying you a lot of fees, I'm finding. They just don't want to pay a Rolls Royce price for a Honda Civic with no air conditioning. But if you perform really well, they don't mind paying a Rolls Royce price for a Rolls Royce experience of their investment and their capital, right? So they want to make sure they're getting what they're paying for. Laura, I think we have another uh, question here in the middle. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I want to get a a better feel for this under LP, um, you know, the general uh, manager limited uh, part, general partner limited partner structures. Sure. Um, two scenarios. One, uh, I'm the guy that finds the property. Uh, I'm the guy that does the entitlement. I'm the guy that does the construction management for an apartment building. What is that? What's the range of what that is worth to the um, uh, pro- to the whole project? Sure. And one other, the second one is the same scenario, except with the development. If I'm a land developer, I, uh, I identify the land. I am the one that's entitling the land and I'm actually turning dirt and building it. What's the range of what that guy should uh, be getting compared to his investor? Some sort of percentage in both cases. I'd, I'd sure. like, to like to know the range of that. Yeah, there's a few ways to approach it. One is that a lot of people, if you're also licensed as a real estate agent and you sourced the deal and you're your own agent in the deal because you're you're licensed, um, oftentimes part of the fee equation is they get the realtor fee for having done it. And that can be in exchange for an acquisition fee or on top of an acquisition fee. Sometimes people... Like I was having breakfast this morning with someone who lives on a 5,000 acre ranch and he brought five clients into the ranch who passively own it. He happens to live on it and he gets 20% equity in it for finding the deal negotiating it, getting a good price, managing the property so that it's passive for everyone else. And he gets 20% equity for doing that and didn't invest, you know, anything material in the deal. Um, so you can, if it's important to you to pick up equity stakes versus form like a fund, you might form it differently and have an LLC for a one-off deal where you know it's this one asset that you're doing. And investors prefer direct deals over funds. Uh, 80, 90% of investors do. Uh, RIAs slightly prefer uh, or prefer funds more often than direct deals. But most private investors, they like direct deals better. I know two 500 million in AUM real estate groups in the family office club who struggled to raise 10 and $14 million funds and gave up after four to $6 million dollars. The only people allocating, or largely, were the ones who had already invested in their direct deals before. And the new people wanted to do some direct deals before they put money in a fund. And those are people that have half a billion dollars of AUM and credibility. So it's not that people can't raise funds. Many people do all the time and are great at doing so. But thinking about, do I want to structure it as a fund? It takes a little bit longer to set up, and usually a bit more expensive, versus a um, an LLC that effectively looks like an LPGP preferred return. You can set up the same structures and waterfalls in there. It's just less expensive, takes less time to form. And it's about that one-off deal or two deals are going into this one LLC. Um, and so the market rates for that, you know, we talked about preferred return market rates earlier. Um, and then many times for putting together a deal, sometimes people get five to seven, 10% equity for putting it together. 20 is kind of the high end. But it just depends on your role in in the driving forward of the value, right? Sometimes people start a company and they raise $10 million and they still own 85% of the company and they didn't invest any money or just put it together, right? So there's pretty broad spectrum out there, um, you know, and if you can do a great result for investors and get paid handsomely at the same time, then more power to you for, for doing that. So part of it is your preferences on income versus equity, et cetera. 
right? What's it worth to entitle the land and put it together? There's a couple answers to that. One is you can shop around and see what other people in your space are charging because there might be a way to joint venture with your peers as well. Yeah, so talking to some other land groups, uh, we've got a land group that's raised a couple hundred million speaking at the Capital Raising Titans event. Brandon is speaking there and they do land deals all day long. You could talk to them about what they charge their clients and maybe there's a way to co-invest with each other uh, uh, sometime down the road. The other thing to think about is maybe the land investors are different than a development investor, which might be different than the cash flow hold at Evergreen investor. So you could always do it within someone who loves land deals and it's an 18 month hold or 36 month hold worth worst case. And then you could be selling that and they could roll over or sell their shares to a different set of investors. And then, but you know, it gets more complicated, the more structures you put in place. My preference would be to keep things as simple as possible and find an investor who's good for going along with the ride and try to refinance them out at some point. Many times there's a development fee, a construction fee or an entitlement fee that's charged and you collect those fees upfront for some of the work. Plus you get some of the upside or equity and just, you know, uh, researching what your closest peers charge would be helpful, but also if you map out one or two options you're thinking of offering people, you can always email that to me and I can, you know, give you my two cents. Maybe a question in the back. Hi, my name is Manzar. My question is regarding family office itself. Is there a legal definition of family office by SEC or FTC or IRS? Does fa- I don't think family office has to be registered with a, uh, yeah. any authority or would it have to be? Yeah, so um, a family office defined by the SEC, I believe, is uh, like a multifamily office is defined as managing the wealth of anybody outside of your immediate family. Then technically they say, oh, well, you need to register as an RIA because you're advising on other people's capital that's not your immediate families. Then they would refer to you as a multifamily office. I'm 95% sure of that definition. I do believe in some markets, depending on level of assets you hold, once you have 150 million of assets, either in the public markets or own a certain percentage of a publicly traded company. I don't know if it's five or seven percent. Uh, there's disclosure forms that you should be filing, or you could face some penalties. But and I and I could be wrong in this next part. Uh, as far as I know, though, you being ultra wealthy, you need to report what you owe in taxes and have accurate tax returns, of course. Uh, but there's no registration as a private investor saying like, "Oh, I'm on a separate list for being a private investor at this level," or. Uh, or this other level, et cetera. So the term family office is also used loosely. You could have a holding company and not know it looks just like a family office that David would help you set up. They might not even think of themselves as a family office. And as I speak in places like Malaysia and Russia, um, Western Europe is pretty advanced, like Australia in the capital markets, but in many places they've never even heard the term family office before. Um, but they're worth a couple hundred million dollars and they have everything David talked about uh, or parts of it. Um, it's just not referred to as such. So sometimes people get caught up on the terminology, which distracts from the fact that they really are a family office, if that helps. I think we had one more question in the middle. There we are. And then we have a question up front after that. Here's the microphone. There next to you. I was just going to say one thing. You don't always need a license because uh, you can be a GP and you can set up funds and not without without a an advisor fee. So you don't always need a license. But I have one neg- uh, one question for you. Sure. Can you think of any negatives other than the expense of setting up a fund? Because uh, that from your perspective of a family office, I mean, other than the cost and other than the time of setting up, what are the other negatives? Yeah, there's a whole, there's a bunch of negatives to it. Um, one is that generally in a fund, you don't know all the assets that will go into it. Um, you are more likely to succeed if you set up a fund that has four assets you've already identified, already put under LOI, 
that's exclusive and you know exactly what's going in the fund. Otherwise, a big negative is you're basically saying, all right, I trust you've done great stuff in the past. I trust you're going to do great stuff in the future, even though the market's different and you might have this money that you feel pressure to put to work. But the assets you actually close on may not be as good as assets you bought in the past. So investors are really taking a leap of faith that you're going to do exactly what you said you're going to do in a really high quality fashion, where if it's not through a fund and it's a deal, and you're saying we're buying this fintech company or we're buying this reoccurring revenue company or this dry cleaner chain. Do you want to own these four dry cleaners with us? Here's the revenue. Here's the profits. Let's go walk it together. And if you don't love it, then you don't invest. You don't get that chance with a fund. Once you put in the money, you're typically in the fund and just hoping it's going to go really well based on their track record. So um, that's the biggest negative that most people see is it basically a blind pool fund where the assets have not been identified versus something that's transparent and direct. And if you had the option, why not have the chance to say yes, no to different assets that you get exposure to versus putting the money out there and having exposure and things you don't know what you're going to get exposure to. You'd know because the fund docs promise we're going to do this and this within these parameters, but you don't know exactly what the assets are. That's the biggest difference I see. Also, it costs more to set up, like you said. Yeah. Uh, question in the front, and then we have a question in the back, too. Yeah, thank you, Richard, for great content. Uh, my name is Venkat Aramili. I'm a multifamily syndicator. Uh, from my question is uh, fund versus, I think, similar question, fund versus LLC. We have a huge community we are educating, so not everyone has, uh, they wanted to participate in our deals. What's the best way to help them out, uh, our investors? Uh, right, people that want to participate in deals. Uh, there's a few answers to that. And um, there's different levels of regulatory risk that you run into. Uh, there is a risk that if someone is helping you syndicate a deal and FINRA or SEC looks at it and says, that person's basically just your capital raiser, they should be licensed typically under a broker dealer, under FINRA rules as a capital raiser. And if you try to make them a co-GP partner and literally the only thing they're doing is raising capital for you and you're just trying to skirt the rules so they don't have to be registered under broker-dealer rules, then there's a, a chance that someone's going to make an example out of you or, or come down on that. There's people that play in the gray areas within every financial regulation, um, but there's a risk of that. Um, so finding people who are licensed to help you raise the capital is the safest way. Uh, if it's legitimately a, a true partnership and they're bringing the deal and expertise and property management and you're bringing this and, and it's more of a full partnership, then it's, it's a it's, later part, actually, okay. not just raising capital. Got just, it. Yeah. yeah. Then that's usually you know, on the spectrum of risk, mm -hmm. uh, a safer way to go. But again, um, not a compliance attorney. And you see that Coinbase is getting sued by the SEC for not following rules that weren't even visible to them. So, you know, uh, regulators can do things that, you know, blindside you sometimes. So you have to gauge how much risk you want to take as a organization on how that's structured and talk to someone, talk to, to two or three compliance experts to take some middle of the road approach is generally what people do. Uh, but to your, to your point on the, the last question in the back there, um, I don't want to confuse the issue. If you're a wealth manager and you're managing wealth, um, for someone who's not in your immediate family, then typically you need to register as an RIA. Many times though, people set up syndications, raise capital for companies. You don't need to register as an RIA to do a Reg D filing or something that has been filed appropriately and done through a compliance attorney and investment securities attorney. where you have had the proper disclosures and state notifications that you're doing this capital raise either under crowdfunding rules or um, Reg D rules, etc. So I'm not saying that to raise capital for stuff, you need to become a RIA. It's just if you're a wealth advisor for more than your family, you have to register as an MFO. So I hope that made sense. A lot of terminology we're throwing out. So if any of that 
just confuse things more, uh, let me know. I'm happy to answer. Uh, I think we have one more question in the back of the room as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's the big thing. If it commissions or not even commissions, if it's a reward of any type that we construed as a form of commission, then you're uh, risking being dinged, basically. As like, uh, that's basically uh, not the whole thing, but that's that's a big part of it for sure. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. So in the event that um, Melvin Johnson of Mod Group, so in the event that the PPMs are spelled out, and maybe you're doing a close-ended fund, and the four asset classes are identified, would you in that case recommend, or do you see the value in a fund structure that goes after that four, those four classes? And Yeah. Um, you know, you have to just always consider like, all right, if you structure it as an LLC with these four assets in it, what would that look like versus if you structure it as a fund with four things in it? Uh, there might be an option there. Usually though, when you're doing an LLC and putting it together and you're syndicating it, you need to know what the assets are. Correct. With a fund, you could know them or you could not is the best of my understanding. And that's kind of the bright line of like you have optionality, but you don't if you don't know the assets, you typically do the fund. The one, one thing to watch out for is there's whole communities out there of capital raising platforms that just push the fund model really, really hard because they make a ton of money when you form a fund. And they're like, yeah, we got a 60K fee we'll put this fund together for you. But the fund might not always be what you should be doing. And lots of investors prefer you didn't have a fund, prefer it was a direct deal, but the push person pushing the platform is beating the fund drum so hard. They're like fun, 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 fun. And it's like maybe not what a lot of investors would like to see. It's always good to have multiple options in the food buffet for investors too. It's just all else equal. People slightly prefer the direct deals usually over a fund. Yeah. And then, um, great. Just one more in the back. And, um, this is great because we have a lot of interactions. Sometimes we go half day or the whole day with no questions. It's just radio silence. And I never know if anyone cares of anything we're saying. So um, we'll actually be doing a small group breakout session uh, after lunch to make sure we break for lunch in time. And that'll give you a chance to network during lunch and then do a breakout after lunch. And also that'll work perfectly because Andrew and I's talk is going to be on creative structures. And we might as well get that done before you do a breakout session on structures and just get all the structure content over to you first. Yes. Yes, Richard. Thanks for the uh, presentation. So uh, you've mentioned like you work with um, syndicates who manage a lot of assets, you know, so they want to do a fund. W what are the main reasons they want to push out for the fund? Is it because they can get the money first? Is it easier to buy deals or like what, what are the main reasons? Yeah. Um, why would someone want to do a fund who is raising capital? You're basically trading one headache for another headache, right? When you lock up a deal, then you have to go and herd a bunch of cats and you're on the 60 day, 90 day window. Hopefully you're in an industry where you have four months or six months to do it and you can breathe. Uh, we've had a deal that we had 10 days to raise a million dollars or we're going to lose our earnest money. We've had a deal where we had 20 days to raise half a million dollars. Um, and sometimes numbers obviously are much, much larger than that. And so you're trading the headache of, hey, please invest in my blind pool fund because we're a great team and we're going to do great things with your money. And then that's one form of a headache because people have to trust that blind pool is actually being great for them. The other headache is the herding of cats and you're trying to run around and someone's on vacation. They have to send a wire chance from Amsterdam or they're flying and they're trying to do it in midair and can't get their text message to factor and the deadline is the next day. Um, so, but one thing to remember is that once you do a direct deal and you do another one and another one, a percentage of those past investors will come in on every deal you do or on half the deals. Like with Darwin German, I can't speak for them, but I've heard them speak many times here. I don't believe they have even one fund. They might now. They probably do have one fund that's that's small, but a billion dollars in asset center management. They've done all direct deal syndications. 
you know? And so that's not the only way to go. We know people that do really well doing a fund too. I don't want to be too harsh on funds, but that, that's some of the trade-off. Yeah, uh, Keith, we'll bring the mic over to you. Getting Laura's steps in today, sorry. <laughs> I've noticed that you can raise a lot more money faster when you've got a direct deal. So I've considered after my last fund structure of if I were to do it again on a direct project of say, doing a 20% raise, like 80-20 split on a blind pool and giving people the chance to get in early. But then the moment I've identified the property and I can say specifically what it is, yeah. switching to like a 70-25 model. Have you right. seen that before? Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen any issues? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you brought up something that I haven't brought up yet is that the more attractive your deal, the more attractive the structure, the more attractive the tax efficiency the more hunger there is for what you have on planet Earth, then the more you can get paid handsomely for the deal, right? So you have more leverage at the table. So if everything is lined up and you have all the advantages, just like the billionaire with exponential execution, because they know themselves, they have an amazing team, amazing business model, amazing partners, credibility, that just all leads to exponential results, then you don't need to take a huge haircut on the fees because everyone wants what you have and they're piling into it and it fills up really quickly, right? So that's really the game you're playing. If you make the other party's life hard and the terms are really bad for them uh, or the structures isn't attractive, then you can't make as much money off it because it's less attractive. So yeah, really good point. Like that dynamic plays with every one of the structures we're talking about here is like in the situation you're in, in the industry for the type of asset you're dealing with as an investor, how do you do as well as possible? Or as a capital raiser, how do you structure it to move efficiently through the jungle and do well for whatever type of animal you are in the investment jungle? You know?